Welcome to the Lincoln Way Christian Church Podcast. This live recording is brought to you from our Sunday morning worship service. Don't forget to also check out www.lincolnway.org. And now for this morning's message. Of all the compliments you could pay me, simply to identify me as Ashlyn's grandpa is just about as good as it gets. She is one of the bright spots in my life. And you can bring up her picture on the screen right now. She uh, introduced a new dimension of joy in my life when she was born on July 21st, 2003. And to a great extent, she has uh, provided me with a new perspective on life. Because shortly after she was born, I began thinking that if my granddaughter lives as long as my grandmother lived, she will live to the year 2097. Now, I don't know about you, but that boggles my mind. What will the world be like in the year 2097 if the Lord delays his coming to that time? Well, I don't have any uh, foolproof answers uh, to that. But if the changes which have occurred in my grandmother's lifetime are any indication of the changes which my granddaughter might have to face, Ashlyn is in for one wild ride. My grandma was born in 1906. Consider the changes which have occurred since that time. In 1906, when my grandma was born, there were no Ford automobiles. There were no women voting in presidential elections. More than that, there was no TV. How did they live without ESPN? In addition to that, there were no atomic bombs, and that was a pretty good thing. There was no communism in Russia or China, and there was no effective vaccine to deal with polio. There was no rock and roll music, there were no personal computers, and there was no fear of AIDS in the world. And yet today, in 2007, all of those things are common realities that we have to deal with every day. The last century has been a time of spectacular change. What sort of changes will take place in the next century during my granddaughter's lifetime? I don't know. And to be quite honest with you, I'm glad that I don't and that I won't have to deal with those changes, with those uncertainties. But my friends, if Ashlyn lives that long, she will. And that has led me to a growing conviction over the last three and a half, almost four years now. I am convinced that one of the primary challenges we face today is the task of preparing ourselves, our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren with the task of uh, living a life for Christ in an uncertain and changing future. Someone has put it this way, the future belongs to those who prepare for it today. 
My friends, that is the task of the church and each of us as individual Christians on April 15th, 2007 and however many days God gives us from here. Now that's why I really believe the subject that you are talking about this month is so very, very important. The most important thing that we can do for ourselves, for our children, and our grandchildren is develop a reasonable faith. One that will provide us with a strong foundation for life in the midst of the change and struggles of human existence. Now last week, Jeff dealt with the issue of faith in his sermon on the resurrection, CSI Jerusalem. I want to continue that thought today with a sermon that we have entitled CSI Eden as we look at the doctrine of creation in the scripture. Now to a great extent, this sermon's already been preached for you in the praise and worship that we've had today. I'm really not going to say much that we haven't already expressed in a, a song. But hopefully we can go a little bit deeper today as we go to Genesis, the first chapter. Read with me the marvelous words of Moses as he begins the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, my friends, to understand these words and their significance at the time that Moses originally wrote them, we all need to realize that at the time that Genesis was written, virtually all the nations surrounding Israel worshipped many gods and believed that the world was created out of the chaotic conflict of the rival gods which they worshipped. In your worship folder today, I have included a summary of the Enuma Elish. This is the most famous of all of the pagan creation myths. And uh, you can read that at your leisure uh, after the services today. As you do, you will see that it contains some pretty wild things. Some things that we might think are incomprehensible. But my friends, I want you to know that the people back in Moses' times actually believed the stuff which you have written down uh, before you. And as the Israelites journeyed from Egypt to the Promised Land, there was a very real danger that instead of believing in the one true God, instead of placing their faith in Him, they would fall into believing these myths as well. And so Genesis 1, the entire book of Genesis, was written to give the Hebrews a proper worldview, to provide them with the groundwork for a reasonable faith, to affirm to them that the world did not arise out of the chaotic infighting of a bunch of petty gods but to confess before them that this universe is the thoughtful work of the one true God who is almighty and all-loving. Now that's what Genesis 1 meant to the people back in Moses' time. 
And my friends, I want you to know that I am convinced that Genesis 1-1 is just as relevant to us today as it was to the people back in Moses' time. Because really, if you look at our society today, much of what we see in our world today is very similar to the mindset of the world back in Moses' time. In fact, I think you can say that our world is more like the ancient pagan world than it's been any time since the early Christian centuries. If you look at much of what we see in the new spirituality, which is so popular in our world today, it is strangely reminiscent of the polytheism and the pantheism, which you're going to read about in the Enuma Elish. More than that, if you look at some of the secular theories of how the world came into being, they suggest the same sort of order out of chaos development which was common in the ancient myths. Now, my friends, as a result of that, I am convinced that Genesis, the first chapter, has a lot to say to us today. It gives us the groundwork for a reasonable faith. And I want you to know very clearly today that as we look at Genesis, it verifies that the world did not arise out of chaos, however that may be defined. But rather, Moses to the people of Israel and to us insists that this world is the thoughtful work of one true God who is almighty and all-loving. I really have appreciated the opportunity to work through some of the things which I'm going to present to you today. It's been good for me because it has reminded me of some things which maybe in the Christian culture I have taken for granted. My friends, I want to stand before you today and say with full conviction in my heart that the most reasonable thing you can do is believe that God created the world. And more than that, I would like to suggest to you today that if we are to have a strong foundation for our life, if we are to prepare our children and our grandchildren to face the demands of human existence in an uncertain and changing future, we must believe and take into our hearts the very sublime truth which Moses spoke so many years ago when he said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the remainder of the time that I have today, I want us to unpack two truths which I see in Genesis 1 and in the remainder of Genesis that are very significant if we are to have a solid foundation from which we can live life. The first of these truths is one that we've sung about quite a a bit already today. God is great. If you look at Genesis 1 very carefully, it is obvious that Moses again again and again asserts that the God who created this world is almighty. Read with me Genesis 1, 3 through 7. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. 
God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. Now, my friends, I hope you paid particular attention to the words that I had in italics on the screen. As we looked at Genesis 1-3, we saw that God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God spoke. And the various aspects of creation came into existence. More than that, if you look at verse 7, God uh, declares in his intent that an expanse separate from the waters, from the other waters. And Moses simply says about that, and it was so. Again and again throughout Genesis 1, Moses declares to us that the world was created by a great God who is the sovereign ruler over all that is. Now, if you compare that to the Enuma Elish, I think you will agree with me that that was a lot more reasonable than anything we see in the pagan creation myths which surrounded Israel. And I would like to suggest to you today that it's a lot more reasonable than any, than any of the competing views which we have in our world today. As I was preparing this sermon, I had the opportunity to renew a friendship which had lapsed for, oh, maybe 10 or, 10 or so years. A good friend of mine is a gentleman named Todd Housh. He is a professor in the geology department at the University of Texas. I knew him when he was a Ph.D. student at Washington University in St. Louis. He's a good friend of Jeff's. He is a uh, sincere believer, and he is a very capable uh, scientist. And so when I knew that this was going to be my topic uh, for this sermon, Apologetics for Creation, I knew that I was out of my league, and I needed to bring in a heavy hitter to uh, deal with this issue, and I thought of Todd. I emailed him and asked him this question. What data in your work as a geologist affirms your conviction that the world has to be the work of a creator God? He sent me back a very long and a very thoughtful email. And I don't have the time or the expertise to deal with everything that he said uh, in that email. But I do want to highlight one thing because I thought it was very significant. He talked with me about the anthropic principle. Now you might be wondering, what is the anthropic principle? I had no clue three weeks ago. And so what I'm sharing uh, with you is uh, some new thought for me today as well. It's very interesting. Todd noted in his email that the physical conditions which make life as we know it possible, are very precise 
and allow very little margin for variation. Say, for example, the force of gravity has to be exactly where it is throughout the universe. Otherwise, the universe as we know it would not exist. If the basic force of gravity was any weaker, the stars would not have the sufficient mass to uh, create the thermonuclear fusion which is necessary for them to shine and create the energy which fuels the universe. If the force of gravity was any stronger, stars would burn out much more quickly than they do and here today, gone tomorrow. More than that, the force which holds atoms together has to be exactly where it is for the elements to, ve to develop as they have. If the force holding the protons, neutrons, and electrons together was any weaker, the only element that there would be in the universe was, would be hydrogen. If it was any stronger, the only element that we might have in the universe was iron, and then everything that goes up heavier than that. Like I said, or more precisely like Todd said, the physical conditions which make life as we know it possible are very precise. It's a very small window. In fact, someone has said of all the possibilities of how the universe could have developed, only 1 to 5% of the combinations necessary are what make the world actually livable. So basically, it's a 20 to 1 shot or a 100 to 1 shot just by chance that this universe is even, even livable in any sense of uh, the term. How did it happen that our universe hit it right on the nose in terms of the atomic forces so that we could have life at all? Is that a happy accident of chaos? Or is it the work of the Creator? Todd Hausch finds it very compelling that this is an evidence for the work of our Creator God. And his words are not all that much different than those you see on the screen today. The heavens declare the glory of God. Another scientist that I consulted, I didn't consult this gentleman personally, uh, is a man named Dr. Francis S. Collins. He is the director of the Human Genome uh, Project, which has mapped human DNA. He is also a believer as well as a capable scientist. And uh, he wrote the book, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. And speaking about uh, his studies, he says, As a believer, I see DNA, the information molecule of all living things, as God's language. And the elegance and complexity of our bodies and the rest of nature as a reflection of God's plan. Now he's talking about a different element of, a different aspect of creation, but his conclusion is the same. Both of these men, as they look at the world, 
are convinced that the only reasonable explanation for our world in all of its marvelous complexity is that it is the work of our great God. Now, we can go on and on and talk about other things. We could talk about Joyce Kilmer's poem, Only God Can Make a Tree. We can talk about the migratory patterns of uh, robins or the Arctic tern, thousands and thousands of miles. Is that a happy accident of chaos, or it is the product of a thoughtful and almighty God? My friends, I am convinced that it is much more reasonable to think that this is the work of a great God. The book of Genesis affirms, and I think some of the best evidence that we see in our world, uh, reaffirms that God is great. But my friends, if we stop there, we've only told half the story. Because the book of Genesis also affirms that God is good. I find it very interesting that Genesis 1 concludes with this majestic statement. When God saw all that he had made, excuse me, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, my friends, there's been a lot of discussion about the length of the days in Genesis. And a lot of very intelligent and sincere Christians have disagreed on this issue. And I will have to admit to you today that I don't have all the answers on that one. Sometimes, I wonder if we're even asking the right question. The one question that has plagued me as I have looked at Genesis through the years is, why did it take God seven days to create the world? Scripture makes it very clear. God is great. He's almighty. Why didn't he just say, let it be? And from everything that I can read, as the microphone pops, it would have happened. Just like that. But God didn't do it that way. Moses tells us that God worked through six creative days to construct the world. And at the conclusion of each creative day, with the exception of day two, I don't know the reason for that, God stopped, surveyed his work, and saw that it was good. And then at the conclusion of the sixth day, God looked at all that he had created, and he said, it is very good. I sometimes think we don't realize the full impact of those words. Have you ever put in a hard day at work, been diligent in trying to do the task which you have, and then at the end of the day you look at what you've accomplished and with a, self, a sense of satisfaction you think to yourself, this has been a good day. My friends, that's the way it was with God. We don't often think about it, but Genesis 1 says volumes about the care, concern, pride, and love which God has put into his creative work. It says an awful lot about the basic goodness of God.
and you'll realize just exactly how much it says about the basic goodness of God when you look at the Enuma Elish and why that creation myth says the pagan gods created the world. Genesis 1 affirms that we serve a God who is great, but more than that, we serve a God who is good. And my friends, I want you to know one of the most important things that we can do for ourselves and for our offspring in this uncertain and changing world is to recognize God's untainted goodness and put our trust in Him. Maybe some of you have seen the slide that's coming up now. Maybe you can make it out. This is a slide which Nokomis used to announce the fact that I'm going to have another granddaughter or grandson. If Ashlyn's prayers are answered, it will be another granddaughter. Um, my friends, I want you to know that it is a great comfort to me as my second child, grandchild develops in Rachel's womb, to know that that child is not at the whim of cruel fate, but rather that that child, as it develops in the womb and all through its life, is in the hands of a loving and ultimately good God. More than that, it's good for me to know that Ashlyn and Rachel and Nokomis and Deb and myself and all of you are in the hands of that good God. Just as he with care and concern watched over the creation of the world, with care and concern and ultimate love he watches over us day by day. And we can take great comfort in that fact, and we must submit to him. God is great. God is good. Creation teaches us that. But more than that, the cross teaches us that. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, and if I may paraphrase a little bit, how good thou art. The great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, said this, and I think this is the bottom line for our sermon today. God created the world out of nothing, and so long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. I guess the bottom line for the sermon today, as we recognize the ultimate greatness and goodness of God, is that we humble ourselves before him and let him do his will in our lives.